You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Well, we're now at a halfway point through our survey of modern philosophy. It might be good to quickly look again at the chart on what I've called the modern project, analysis done by Leo Strauss. And just recall that modern philosophy is dealing with the issues posed by, on the one hand, modern natural science, Galileo, Copernicus, the new mathematical explanations of physics and nature. There's no teleology that looks on the world as a machine. And on the other hand, we have the new political science started by Machiavelli, the concern with power and organization and balance of power and a realistic view of human nature coming together in a synthesis first made by Descartes around the theme of mastery of nature, of using the new science, the new understanding of nature, plus the new awareness and appeal to the realistic view of human nature to call for a technology and a new mastery over things to benefit mankind to establish a greater peace politically and to generate more material production. Descartes put these together and we saw some elaborations by Hobbes on the political front and then Spinoza on the metaphysics with some final warnings by Pascal. With John Locke we have a new taking stock of the possibilities of the modern project, a new bringing together of those elements using Descartes, but bringing Descartes into a more common sense form, using that British sobriety. John Locke takes the elements of the modern project and puts them into a new form. He also attempts to bring back in the biblical tradition. And so we have a greater synthesis, a more firm foundation, and in some ways it's Locke's philosophy that has been the most influential and has been the most stable, although we'll see it has its own internal inconsistencies and instabilities that will lead to David Hume and ultimately Immanuel Kant about the problem of knowledge and then the instabilities in Locke's ethical political theory will be pointed out by Rousseau and that also will feed into Kant's final synthesis of modern philosophy. So Locke has as his large work in epistemology, the essay concerning human understanding, which I have up here in front of me. It's a massive tome which he wrote over a number of years. His other great work are the two treatises on government, which influenced the founding fathers of the United States. 
I might add that this book by Locke on human understanding was written over a number of years. He was influenced by these religious wars, which we recall was also part of the modern quest for certitude, the despair and skepticism over competing claims of religion and the persecution which led to new ideas about establishing harmony in society and a restricted role for religion in society. John Locke also was concerned about these immediate political questions. At one point he had to flee England because his ideas were under suspicion and it was in Holland that he wrote a large part of this book. He did return to England with Queen Mary following the Glorious Revolution and that's again why his political writings have had such an important impact. So let's spend some time with the essay concerning human understanding. It's divided into four parts. The first part is a criticism of innate ideas. It's his attack upon that rationalist tradition from Descartes through Spinoza and Leibniz. Locke thinks that we need to begin with what he calls a plain historical method, not to begin with innate ideas or the sufficiency of the mind's own contents, but to return to experience and catalog the various elements of experience. So part one is a refutation of the very notion of innate ideas, setting up his new method of the plain historical method. Part two of the essay, he analyzes the elements of experience down into the basics. He thinks that he can reduce all experience, like Descartes, into simple natures, although in this case it won't be the pure mathematical simple natures, but it will involve sense experience, reflection, and combinations of ideas. In the third part of the essay, he looks at more complex ideas involving relations, cause and effect, moral ideas, and the more high-reaching ideas of the human mind. And then finally in part four, he considers the various degrees of assent to the truth of propositions and considers the extent and basis of knowledge. He admits the work is sprawling and too massive and should have been edited down, but he did publish it as it is. Let me cover some of the main ideas and then we'll see that the essay is a springboard to the two treatises and actually will give us a framework for interpreting some of the disputed points of the second treatise of government. The critique of innate ideas has the same function as Descartes' radical doubt. It operates in a different mode in that it will not invoke an evil genius or all the skeptical doubts about sensation, but it's a way in which he clears away all the inherited ideas from the past. As a matter of fact, that's his account of what we call innate ideas. He says innate ideas are really nothing more than what custom and learning 
have persuaded us to accept as self-evident. But he thinks under analysis he can show that all ideas come from experience and we are influenced by how we've been raised, the various political and religious communities that we're in. So all of these have to be swept aside as a source of prejudice, enthusiasm, and irrationality. So it is the new method to begin with doubt and to brush aside all the inherited wisdom or ideas of the past and start with the clean slate. John Locke calls himself in this essay, in the preface, that he's nothing but a humble underlaborer, clearing the brush and trash away from the ground so that the edifice of science can be built upon the clear ground. Locke was friends with Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle and admired them very much and saw their scientific work being the real work of reason, but Locke thought this big book would just clear away all the brush and trash that have accumulated in the human mind and clean it out so science could start up fresh. Now when we get to his actual account of ideas, we see that again although he is changing Descartes, he is following the same main ground. What is the same is the idealism. What is the same is the rationalism. What is the same will be this dualism. We'll have those same three problems, but in Locke they've become more psychologized. They've become more interpreted along an empirical line, but it's the same Cartesian dynamic. For example, Locke begins with ideas. That's the idealism. We begin not with things, but within the contents of our own consciousness. Now what is different is that Locke is looking at a more diverse set of experience and ideas coming out of experience, but it still begins with the idea and we get this problem of how to know whether these ideas represent the world outside the mind. It's really not until book four of the essay, after like Descartes proving the self and the existence of God that he finally gets down to the question of the reality of the world. And his best answer is that because things cause pleasure and pain and we don't have immediate control over that, they must be independent of our mind. But again, Descartes acknowledged as much. Locke uses this example, if I stick my hand in fire, it's absurd to ask whether the fire is there. But this is just a pragmatic affirmation of the world. The idea itself doesn't give you any unity with the world or communion with the world. So on Locke's account, we will reduce knowledge to impressions. We will try to analyze down, this would be following Descartes' second rule of analysis down to simples. In the case of Locke, the simples are what later are called sense data. We will get down to colors and sounds 
and pleasure and pain. And then out of those, he says, we build the primary qualities of extension and solidity and so on. So it's from this simple beginning that Locke says all the great ideas are built up. So the mind compounds or makes the more complex ideas by reducing them to the simples. So on Locke's formula, good philosophy and good science will take any term and be able to show its definition by resolving it down to the basic experience or units of experience in sense data, or he also does add on the possibility of ideas coming from reflection. From reflection, he thinks, is where we get our notions of time, duration, and therefore of causality. Now, this has an interesting impact for science. Locke is trying to give a philosophy that will bolster the new science. Reacting against Descartes' claim to know the essences of things, Locke does develop a very fruitful notion in which he talks about the nominal essence of things. He says we can't know things in their essence, but by gathering together various properties, we can attribute a power to a thing. So my analysis of things in the world will involve cataloging the various impressions they make and attributing to them the power to affect the world or affect me in certain ways. Although this can be useful as a device in understanding science, some contemporary philosophers of science have shown the usefulness of this approach, especially in areas of chemistry, of bringing together, say, with copper or gold, trying to figure out what they are, we would list certain properties, and gold stands for some substance which has this certain collection of properties. Now the metaphysical problem is Locke admits that on his account of ideas, the word substance has no root in what I can resolve down to impressions. I don't have an impression of substance. Now Hume is going to latch on to this and basically explode Locke's moderate common sense philosophy. But Locke himself admits substance is an unknown X. The unknown thing that I assume is underneath those properties of gold, its malleability, its color, and so forth. But all I can really vouch for scientifically are these phenomenal aspects. But then my mind attributes to it this notion of substance. If we move on with Locke's account, we'll see that he's also not able to explain satisfactorily human freedom and human identity. We get back to this problem of dualism. On liberty, he follows Hobbes' basic idea that liberty is nothing but the free movement of a body. 
And so it's a negative liberty. It's the liberty of being able to follow motion in a certain direction. He does have an elaborate analysis of the psychology of liberty, of trying to understand what happens when human beings choose. And at the end of the day, he thinks there is the possibility for human beings to suspend judgment and to be able to weigh various aspects of a choice. But in this calculation of choice, we'll see a new psychology. Given this reduction of experience to impressions, he can only give a hedonistic understanding of human motivation. That is, pleasure and pain are the simple concepts that he thinks human nature and human choice must be reduced to. I think one of the revolutionary passages in the essay, in light of ancient ethics, is in book two of the essay in a section on power, about human liberty, or he talks about it under human power. And in it, he says that the philosophers of old did in vain inquire whether there was a highest good, and wondering whether it consisted in riches or bodily delights or virtue or contemplation. See, Locke is read as Aristotle. He's read as Plato. That is the big question for the ancients. What is the highest good? And although Lucretius identifies it in pleasure, the great tradition of the ancients identifies it with moral virtue and above moral virtue contemplation. So Locke says, in vain did those ancients even talk about it. Why? Because he said they might have reasonably disputed whether the best relish were made of apples, plums, or nuts, and have to argue about that. For the pleasant taste doesn't depend on things, but on their agreeableness to this or that palate, where there is great variety. And the analogy Locke will make is, what is agreeable or disagreeable to the palate, so too the highest good depends on what is agreeable or disagreeable to this or that human being. This is one of the really corrupting and shocking bases of Locke's claim that he's bringing back in the tradition or the moderation or sense of decency that was lost through the Machiavellian project. Really, this passage will haunt his account of liberal democracy, for again it means we can no longer distinguish what is noble and what is base, what belongs in the gutter and what does not, because Locke says it all depends on how you feel or whether it causes you pleasure or pain, and that's variable. So on this basis, Locke must construct an ethic. He must construct a sense of personal identity. Let me just say, on the question of identity, Locke takes an interesting turn. Again, psychologizing the cogito of Descartes, he says that the self is nothing more than its own self-awareness in time. That is, self-identity depends upon the memory I have of past things and my anticipation of things in the future. 
he gets locked into some fascinating paradoxes about identity on suppositions, what if my memory could be implanted in someone else? Or what if I lose my memory? Does this mean I'm not the person I was? Or if my memory could be given to something else, does that mean they become me? You see, he has no basis other than the psychological experience to try to account for identity. And it's really an unstable solution. And again, it will take Hume to drag out the full contradiction. Once we let go of some idea of soul as the form of a body, once we let go of some idea of Aristotelian substance, something that has identity and continuity over time as one thing, a notion from Aristotelian philosophy of nature, then we're not able to account for identity. But I would like to press on to Locke's elaboration of this notion of self with its own impressions, the reduction to experience, and see how he does come up with a new account of human social life, virtue, religion, and politics. This is where we need to swing, start to begin to move over to the two treatises. But I think see from the essay how his first principles must lead us to interpret the second treatise along more of a Hobbesian line than along the lines of, for example, Hooker or others in the tradition who were seeking to develop the ancient and medieval notion of natural law. First, let's look at Locke's notion of virtue. In the essay, he says that virtue is nothing more than the law of fashion or custom. Locke thinks that all of our actions we bring under three possible laws. We need a law to tell us whether the action is acceptable or not, and the law will establish an authority that can impose sanctions. That's what Locke reduces moral concepts to, a law, a lawgiver, and sanctions. So as Locke analyzes our various moral possibilities, he sees three possible moral codes. The first one he calls the law of God, or the divine law. The divine law, he says, has God as its lawmaker and its sanctions are heaven and hell. This, he says, is what the natural law really is. It's the divine law. Secondly, he says, there's civil law. Civil law has as its authority the legislator, the king or the parliament. That, of course, was under dispute at Locke's time, but he was interested in the claims of parliament and the popular source of legislation. But civil law requires some civil authority who can designate something criminal or not and impose temporal sanctions, taking away one's money or one's liberty or one's life. Thirdly, he says, now to come back to the theme I started with, he said there's a law of fashion. Law of fashion is a very nebulous moral code, but he thinks it's the most influential one. The law of fashion has as its authority 
the social groups that I belong to. And the sanctions are honor and shame. I will be praised or blamed by people, depending on whether I violate the laws of fashion. Now, the radical move here is Locke identifies virtue, the great theme of Aristotle and Plato, developed by Augustine and Aquinas, that virtue in Locke's account is nothing more than this irrational fashion, this opinions that men and women have about what is acceptable or not in society. Now, seeing then that fashion is no rational ground for morality, he says we have to reject this as a way to do morality. And he does say this is what the philosophers talked about when they talked about the noble and base. And that whole tradition we will now dismiss because it's irrational and it's nothing more than fashion. Well, that turns us back over to what he says is natural law. And Locke is said to be a great teacher of natural law. The second treatise is a book based on natural law. What is natural law? as Locke explains it in the essay. Well, Locke sets up a very high standard. Again, I interpret this will have an ironic dimension to it. Natural law is simply the divine law. So on Locke's account here, for there to be natural law, I must know that there's a God, that God is a lawgiver. I must know what his law is. Further, I must know that he will punish it with eternal sanctions of heaven and hell, which means I must know that the soul is immortal. Now that's a pretty high standard for natural law. There's no doubt that the medieval account of natural law had that as its furthest reaches. But Aquinas's account of natural law comes from the floor up. It has many steps along the way and doesn't require as a first known to us, a principle first known to us, God, heaven, and hell, and so on. It just requires knowledge of human nature and what's good and what helps human beings flourish. And to see then natural law is that which encourages good and marks out the evil which we must refrain from. But no, Locke wants to have it all at once. Now, I think the way he sets up the essay, by setting the standard so high, it will be virtually impossible to meet those demands. So why is it impossible to do? Well, think about those demands. Can we prove that God exists? Locke gives a proof way back in Book 4. Again, it's a psychologized version of Descartes' proof. It's not an ontological proof from the very idea of God, but it goes more along the lines of how do I account for my own mind or my own existence. And it's a very weak proof. We can read it and see what we think about it. But even if the proof works, you'll notice in the list of attributes, Locke says something like this, we've proven that there's a most powerful being. He says nothing about the goodness of this being. 
he says nothing about the providence of this being. So that's enough to get you wondering. But let's just say, okay, even for the sake of argument, Locke proved that there's a God. What about immortality? In the essay, he flat out says, we know nothing about the soul. We cannot prove that the soul is immortal. We can't prove there isn't a soul, but it's a form of agnosticism. Now, he finishes that section on the soul by saying, well, don't worry. If you're worried about heaven and hell, and we don't know if the soul's immortal, we know that God is powerful enough to raise us up and to give us our reward or punishment. But see, what an odd thing for an arch-rationalist to be saying. Someone who says at the outset he wants to prove it all by reducing it to the basics of experience admits now that we have to invoke faith. Now, Locke may be sincere in his faith, but he claims he can demonstrate morality. He is following that mathematicism of Descartes. He claims he can demonstrate morality along the lines of geometric proof. Well, how do we explain this contradiction in Locke? I think the only way to explain it is to move on to that third category of law and see how it conveniently dovetails with the divine law and in a way identifies it if not replaces it. It goes something like this. Locke says, even without knowledge of God, we can come to see the reasonableness of certain laws which protect life, liberty, and property. He says, everyone cries up them as sacred because they don't want to be harmed themselves. So he thinks even without knowledge of God or heaven or hell, we can come to acknowledge that portion of the divine law which is immediate in serving our own self-interest and our own preservation. So Locke basically takes that Hobbesian core of self-interest and the social contract the protection of life, liberty, and property, this mutual agreement that we will refrain from harming one another in their life, liberty, and property, and says that is the core of civil law. The civil authority can punish those with temporal punishments, and that then is the divine law that we know. Well, this certainly is a long distance from Thomistic natural law. It's a long distance from Hooker and Anglican natural law. But Locke is able, you see, to put the Hobbesian account in a way that invokes the Bible and natural law. So he raised less opposition to himself. But it is the new political theory. It's Hobbes reborn again in a new form. We've lowered the aim of political life to comfortable self-preservation. We've identified the basic elements of politics, no longer as obligation or duties of citizens, but we will see it in terms of fundamental individual rights. We will see that the government's role is limited to this protection of life, liberty, and property. So I think we'll see it's rooted in the essay. 
we can say with certainty that Locke has made a definitive break with the natural law tradition. Liberty of the individual is the primary characteristic of humanity, not his sociability. We need to reorganize the social order to maximize liberty, protect property, encourage acquisition and production of material wealth. Now, one of the good side benefits here will be the respect for religious toleration as it unleashes productive energies. We start to see in Locke then the foundation for modern liberal democracy. But we have to see at its root, moral law is deduced from self-interest properly understood. Do no harm to others, don't infringe upon the right to others. So right conduct is that which respects the boundaries of each person's rights regardless of the consequences. Each person has the right to live as he or she chooses, as long as an equal right is left to others. It's a minimalist morality. Later writers will talk about a thin theory of the good. The basic human goods we know are those which any human being would need, whatever his purposes or objectives. Well, when you turn to the two treatises on government, you see as it opens, Locke explains rights this way. He says, we are all made by the Creator as His workmanship. Therefore, none of us has the right to violate the rights of God's workmanship. This is what has led many to say that the second treatise is reasserting a medieval-type theory of natural law. But as I've suggested, if one looks back at the essay, you'll see that this notion of the workmanship model is very untenable and cannot be rationally or empirically justified. Locke does bring in that element, so we can say it's an element of faith. But what really makes it work is the more straightforward account given by Hobbes. Human selfishness, hedonism, rational self-interest leading to self-limitation in terms of equal limitation of others, a lowering of the goal of political life, and so on. So, it's really the supreme irony of the essay that the divine law is reconstrued in the very attempt to reassure the Christian believer. Locke does not explicitly deny the integrity of faith, nor existence of a life beyond this world. But since he makes the conditions for knowledge of divine law so strict, we can't really discover it. It will always be a matter of faith. We need this knowledge of divine existence and attributes. Now, the traditional doctrine of natural law appeals to nature as a norm. Within the context of teleological nature, the good is defined in terms of human perfection. Again, go back and just consider that chart on the modern project. The modern science is non-teleological. So Locke is developing a moral theory consistent with modern science. So teleology is not part of it. Again, that's another clue that when he uses the word natural law, it'll be an equivocation to say it's the same or a development of the natural law tradition. 
In the old tradition, the good attracts the human agent by its fullness and its beauty. The good man performs his functions well and perfects his faculties of reason and will. See, Locke's theory doesn't depend upon notions of nature with purpose or any spiritual faculties to be perfected. The notion of person as a conscious self replaces the traditional notion of soul. And consciousness of self has the highest degree of certainty according to Locke. It's not the abstract or pure mind of Descartes we've seen, but it is the consciousness of pleasure and pain, an agent's awareness of his own ease or uneasiness in the world. Locke's reading from the essay, Locke says, quote, self is that conscious thinking thing, whatever substance, spiritual, material, simple or compound, it doesn't matter, which is sensible or conscious of pleasure and pain, capable of happiness and misery, and so is concerned for itself as far as that consciousness extends, end of quote. The Locke self See, in a way, he's neutral. He doesn't care about the substance question, the soul question. He just appeals to the self-conscious concern for pleasure and pain. And on that basis, we'll build up a system of rules and ethics and political system, which on the one hand will promise comfortable self-preservation or fulfillment of that concern, and on the other, make a minimal set of demands and need to actually come back and use the law of fashion to help citizens learn not to violate the rights of others. Now, it's interesting that Locke invokes something like Pascal's wager at a certain point, because he says, from the perspective of personal consciousness, a rational ordering of choice is possible. It has to do with calculation of future gain and loss. See, ethics is not oriented by a notion of duty or perfection, but by self-advantage and self-interest. Utilitarian calculation will harmonize my interest with the interest of others. But Locke realizes that human consciousness will extend way out to the future. And so the best he can do in returning to the divine law is give something like a wager that if God does exist, the future consequences of heaven and hell should weigh in to make one fear the consequences and obey the divine law. But after that high-flown speculation, he will return again to say that part of the divine law we know is remarkably similar to Hobbes's account. So this ethics may be appropriated by faith. It's a rational pursuit of happiness. However happiness is defined becomes virtuous conduct. It's really an astounding ethics as one analyzes it to see how it does incorporate such moral relativism and concern for temporal convenience. This appropriation of the rational laws of utility by faith reorients that faith to the things of the world. The concern for a better world or an afterlife seems to be superfluous. 
because of following the rules of happiness, that is, following Hobbes's natural laws, the social contract, one is virtuous. There doesn't seem to be any other special religious concern. You know, this is part of Locke's rhetoric that he will often combine in one sentence concern for a better life after the world and a concern for a better life in this one. Sometimes, though, Locke drops out this reference to the aim of finding a better life after this one. And he sounds like Descartes and Bacon. That is, he talks about increasing the stock of conveniences for the advantages of ease and health. This is the goal of knowledge, he says in Book 4. And when the two aims, that is, a better life on earth and concern for an afterlife are put into juxtaposition. He says the greatest praise goes to the inventor. It does not go to works of mercy and charity. You know, I hear this often repeated as a popular notion that Bill Gates has done more for the world than Mother Teresa. Now, in a way, we're comparing apples and oranges. But in a way, that gets to the question, what is our ultimate scale of values? So if it's not mercy or charity, neither does it go to contemplation, philosophic or religious. But Locke's greatest praise in the essay, he says, are for the discoverers. The discoverer of iron, he said, is the father of arts and the author of plenty. In any case, we see the modern project elevating human power and placing God in the background. Technological know-how for Locke is esteemed above the quality of mercy. See, Locke will actually say technology will save men from the grave. But we know that works of mercy may secure men's eternal estate, as Locke refers to it. Whatever Locke's interest in Christianity may be, and we'll probably not know, he went to the grave with that secret. It surely does differ from traditional Christianity. Despite the acknowledgment of God and religious duty, the temporal focus of Locke's practical aim is manifest. It's a purely secular ethic. So if faith is superfluous, if we have a new ethic, a new political order, why is it even retained? Well, we know that Locke wished to communicate his new ethic to various audiences, including Christian believers. The use of familiar terminology is retained so that the new ideas, here's a quote right out of Locke's preface, my ideas have to be made easy and intelligible to all sorts of readers. By the way, Francis Bacon talked about the project in terms of charity. Machiavelli at times will talk about charity. Remember Descartes talked about being a benefactor, that he would sin against the law of benefaction if he hid this new possibility of technology. Again, there's a truth to that. And it'll be, I think, part of the great achievement of Vatican II we'll see in our ending considerations to try to bring together that modern project with the things that are left out. God, ethics, dignity of the person, some important things. But while not dismissing the project, 
seeing that these early formulations of it by Machiavelli, Bacon, Descartes, Locke are missing some key things. John Yolton, a great Locke scholar, has said Locke secured for posterity advances that were made by radical and progressive forces, see, by couching it in a more moderate way. And we see later those who openly professed themselves against revealed religion found in Locke tools to be exploited, Yolton said. But Yolton notes that others of more moderate temperament aligned to orthodoxy drew upon Locke. Our own founding fathers drew upon Locke. See, Locke was able to tone down or moderate or put into a more comprehensive package the fundamental Cartesian project of radical doubt, mathematicism, the mastery of nature. So it was in the hands of these more moderate readers of Locke that the new tendencies were, as Yolton says, aided and abetted by the structure of the essay. He says the application by the deist were flashy and superficial, but the traditionalists were more penetrating, perceptive, and positive. The point here is Locke found a way to enter into the most sacred and guarded of domains, theology, morality, religious belief, and left his philosophical mark. Whereas Bacon, Descartes, especially Hobbes and Spinoza stirred up great resistance. Hobbes was banned. Spinoza's books were burned. Locke was able to introduce modern rationalism and the conquest of nature into the theological heart of the moral and political order. So as later thinkers talked about the pious Locke even, again as I said he influenced our founding fathers not only politically but in their theology. We find Locke then has made the greatest impact upon the modern world. Now just to mention, again, one or two of the strengths and weaknesses of this account. The strengths, of course, are that it found a way to advocate religious toleration and peace. It pointed out the notion of rights and the fundamental idea of the person and the rights of the person as the core for political organization. It did open the way to developments in science. I think the downside, though, we see of this account are some things I've already mentioned, but just to repeat them on the level of, well, both looking at the metaphysics and the ethical. On the metaphysical level, we see that it has a notion of self that is psychologized and without foundation in any notion of substance or being. It's the same dualism and the same hedonism that we find from Descartes and Hobbes. I mentioned, although it does have this fruitful notion of the nominal essence to explain scientific discovery. It still lacks a robust notion of causality 
and the mutual influence of things in nature. And then when we get to its ethical political view, its notion of liberty as freedom from restraint and openness to any purpose as long as one doesn't harm others, we find the possibility of the degeneration of morality. John Paul II says it's sometimes held that freedom is an end in itself, and each human being is free when he makes use of his freedom as he wishes. And this must be the aim of individuals and societies. He's talking about Locke. But John Paul says in reality, freedom is a great gift only when we know how to use it consciously for everything that is our true good. See, the problem is, Locke's solution will enshrine selfishness. The loss of a common good, as great as the discovery of human rights are for a historical achievement, it has happened that the notion of duty has been eclipsed. Now Kant will try to rectify that, but still to this day we hear a prophet like Solzhenitsyn saying it's time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. And further, as Solzhenitsyn's criticism points out, it's inevitably going to lead to a loss of courage. Why is anyone willing to sacrifice? Another one of the critics of Locke, the Canadian philosopher George Grant, has asked the question this way in a book of his called English Speaking Justice. He says, if Lockean contractualism is the truth about justice, that is, that it really gets down to self-interest or comfortable self-preservation. He said, why should anyone be a soldier or a policeman? Why would anyone want to be committed to an obligation which entails sacrifice? Here's Grant's phrase. He says, to put it in the ethical realm clearly, if avoidance of death is our highest end, that's Hobbes and Locke, the positive would be comfortable self-preservation. Why should anyone make sacrifices for the common good? Why should anyone choose to be a soldier or a policeman if Lockean contractualism is the truth about justice? Yet a society does require such kinds of commitment. So although Locke folds together the biblical faith and distant references to the tradition of natural law, in fact, he has a principle that will undermine itself. So as we move on now, we'll see Hume, Barclay, Rousseau undermining the stable position Locke has worked out. And then Kant tries to put together, let's say, for a third time, the modern project. And he's put it into the form that has been the most enduring and remains the standard to this day of what is modern. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.